Hi, space and drug fans. I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I've been hanging out in SF, so instead of a typical interview, we're going to share a bit from our friends over at the Equity Crew, who are taking a page out of the TC Pod book and going over some of the big news of the week, including the U.S. Department of Justice's lawsuit against Google claiming the company has an unlawful monopoly in the digital ad market, and how the crypto community is reacting to big tech layoffs. SpaceX completed a wet dress rehearsal of its full Starship launch system, complete with Booster. This is a necessary step ahead of an actual orbital test launch, which could now happen relatively quickly once the company secures all its approvals. Starship is a key ingredient in SpaceX's future, both in terms of reaching Mars and for bringing down the cost of launch significantly. More on this from Arya Alamalhodii on TechCrunch. Amazon has launched a new add-on for its Prime subscription that includes coverage of generic drugs that address 80 common conditions. The program is available to U.S.-based Prime subscribers right now and includes medications that treat depression, hypertension, hair loss, and more. Check out more on TC from Ingrid London. LastPass has confirmed that during a major breach it suffered last year, customer backups were among the information stolen. In addition to the backups, the hackers also stole the company's encryption key, meaning that while the backups themselves were encrypted, the attackers could unencrypt them. While LastPass declined to say how many customers were affected, it says it has around 800,000 customers total, so the size of the breach could affect a lot of people. More on this from Carly Page on TechCrunch. Now we'll hear from the Equity Crew. To hear the full episode, check out the Equity feed. We don't talk about the law as much as we should, but this week (laughs) Google got our attention because it has officially been sued by the U.S. government and eight states over its online advertising monopoly. I pushed for this in the script this week because I was kind of like, we don't always see... I mean, I think antitrust lawsuits are this evergreen thing that exists in tech and companies' lives, and we don't hear about it get to the stage too much. But Mm -hmm. for a little bit of background, the U.S. government is upset with Google because they think it has this position and, and ownership over all the tools that publishers use to sell advertising opportunities, and it takes advantage of that upper hand, which basically, you know, I think in the story we described as exclusionary conduct across the ad tech industry per the U.S. government. And the DOJ is arguing that Google has this like negative intent that unfairly favors its own products over other companies. I, I want general tech sentiment on it first, but I pause there. Is there anything I missed with exactly what the tension is over Google and the U.S.? I kind of wonder, though, how can they prove that it's favoring its own From what I'm understanding, I think Google has been on this like acquisition spree that specifically is around its positioning and how it handles advertising. And so I'm sure it has data and this is not a new tension that Google has thought about. I think this lawsuit first arose in 2020, but has been a long time coming for forever. But I think, yeah, it's just like the number of steps it's made and the number of companies it's bought in the space. I don't know. I feel Mm. like it's kind of like if I was a tech company or a startup even, seeing Google being looked at by the US and just being potentially looked at for antitrust, I'd be paying attention because one, it impacts me if I'm looking for Google ads, but also it impacts me if I end up ever getting into a space where I could be too big for my own good. Yeah. I mean, we've seen antitrust issues come up for sure in the past. I mean, the Visa Plaid deal fell apart. Yeah for that very same reason as you know the DOJ like dug deeper into that there was real concerns about monopolistic intentions on on visas part so i will be curious to see what happens because this could set a precedent right we'll be watching 
closely. And I know that Google seems to claim, oh, the digital ad market's super healthy, it's competitive, there's Meta, there's Amazon, there's Microsoft. But I, I don't know, I can, I guess a little bit where there's smoke, there's fire, maybe here. Yeah. And I think especially looking at this through the lens of sort of Visa and Plaid, it kind of like begs the question then, if this were to go through, if these government ends up being successful with this, does it kind of set a precedent that maybe some startups could become too big to even consider M&A as an exit opportunity anymore? If it's going to have to worry about antitrust and sort of who's buying them, will it come across this way? Will it come across that way? Would that push companies to like the size of Plaid to just take that off the table as a mm-hmm. potential exit opportunity mm-hmm. because of just some of what's going on with some of the larger companies in the space? But that's purely speculative. I don't know what you guys think that of that. That is such a good question. I hadn't even thought of that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, we can't exit now. I guess like, do we have to become a smaller company before we exit if we can't IPO? Like, what does that conversation even look like one day in the future? That's Yeah, insane. that must be like a difficult spot to be in, right? If you're a company that's growing and you're, you know, you want to exit in under some capacity, especially now with the public markets being so not closed, but, you know, being so hard like to to get into. And if you start to feel limited in terms of M&A, it's like, well, what options are there right yeah, now? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. The only other like small bit that I was thinking through is how the iOS 14 update fits into all of this because I feel like that's like what all these founders tell me about how Google and Facebook advertising became super hard to do and mm-hmm. has completely disrupted the paid marketing attribution world. So they've gone to TikTok and they've gone to bigger companies. If you're a D2C company like Amazon and kind of found space there. And so while I do think people are going to pay attention to Google, I was thinking like the iOS 14 update maybe takes a little bit of like the tech angle away from how much we care about Google's advertising dominance, specifically in like the early stage tech world. Good point. Mm-hmm. Well, we do know that Google and Alphabet, its parent company, have had layoffs recently, and we're not going to talk about them more than that because our next theme is actually about the good news. Becca, you're talking about hiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for talking about hiring. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I recently spoke to a couple of VCs as well as a professor at Columbia about what happens to hiring at startups now. Like we went through 2021, companies had so much money. A lot of companies have now since said that they overhired. We've seen a lot of layoffs. And it's like, well, where do you go with hiring plans from here? And so chatting with a few different investors, the common thread was just that companies should be prepared to really talk about it when they pitch to investors of what that money will go to. I talked to Angela Lee at Columbia and she mentioned that that was always like the last slide, like, oh, how do you spend the money? And it was always like hiring. And it was like, (laughs) she was like, you didn't spend any time on that slide. It was a total throwaway, like no one cared. But now companies should be prepared to say like what departments they're hiring for and why that aligns with the stage that they're raising at or why it aligns with some of the other milestones they're trying to hit by the next funding round. And they should really be able to sort of talk about why they're hiring those specific people as well as why they're going to pay those people what they're going to pay them yeah, and why they need to hire a full role as opposed to outsourcing to a financial services company or sort of like a fractional position. I just thought this was really interesting because this is just one of those fun topics that have emerged in the last few months of things where it's like, Technically, startups should have always been doing this. And now it's like the market's kind of pushing them to be like, okay, let's actually follow the best practices now. Which I mean, hey, better late than never. But 
Yeah, curious what you guys think, especially because you guys have done a lot more of the layoff coverage than I have, looking through that lens of sort of how startups might approach hiring now. I mean, I love, sorry, I loved your story, Becca. Uh, like, I thought it was really well done. You talked to people who had actually very interesting things to say, agreed that, yes, okay, these were things that companies should have been thinking all along. But in their defense, in the craze of 2021 and the funding sprees that were happening, yeah. they probably weren't being asked these questions so much by VCs either, right? So like, I think the blame can kind of go both ways there, right? Yes. <laughs> Speaking of blame, that's what I'm thinking about is like, are VCs taking their own advice? And that's like, I know, like kind mm. of a argument I make all the time, but like I just saw on Andreessen Horowitz's career page, which is like my favorite pastime, like what they're hiring for. And they're hiring for like a partner just to run Tech Week, which no shade. We have an events team. Events are very hard to put on. I just feel like, you know, VCs have been all about these like different services beyond the baseline. And I'm just like, I hope if you're giving this advice, you are taking it yourself um, mm-hmm. And telling them more about how you're spending, telling your LPs about how you're spending your money. Don't forget mm-hmm. that you have VCs too, VCs. Sorry, <laughs> I just like I get so frustrated. <laughs> yeah, because I, I something else that I thought was kind of interesting is just the fact that I don't know that investors like didn't really pay that much attention to it before. Like, right. if that's like a third of the reason the company's raising money, like, don't you think you'd kind of want to know? what that strategy was before writing the check. So kind of surprising. And I definitely think that ties into the whole, there's blame on both sides. Like if you right. were a VC and you were never asking your portfolio companies this, and then you're going to come back later and be like, oh, you shouldn't have hired that way. It's like, well, you didn't ask them or, you know, guide them right. in a way that you said you would. And so I don't know. This These stories are always interesting. The whole, I love now them. people are going to do what they're supposed to do, which VCs can say is really easy. <laughs> oh, I said that before. And it's like, I don't know if you did. Totally. Do you guys remember mm. any of like the crazy roles that we saw during the bull cycle? I'm trying to remember. I know, I mean, and this isn't crazy, but like just like chief community officers. I wonder how those roles are going. And like, are those being hired for anymore? And like, I mean, yeah, there's probably so many of those executive roles that are no longer a thing. Yeah, I mean, like one of the quotes in your article, Becca, was just, you know, the word that comes to mind is thoughtful, like really just companies in general, whether they be startups or these big tech or whatever, just need to be more thoughtful in hiring and not going crazy. Even even like Apple, we covered, Ron Miller wrote about like, they're the only one of the big five that haven't laid off lately. And one of the reasons why is they did not go crazy in hiring over the past few years. So well, like- I kind of give them credit for that. You know, they, they didn't go crazy. So now they're not necessarily being in the headlines for laying off. But in general, like lessons learned for everybody from all that's happened. You know, these are people being impacted. So, yep. and I've said this before, like if you're coming up with these roles, like really think about each one. I mean, and one of the people you interviewed said this too, Becca, it's like, think about it. Can you not do contracting here? Do you mm-hmm. have to hire a full-time person, right? Think, like really think it through. It shouldn't just be like, hey, we need to hire like 50 people in this team. That's it. Let's go. You know, it just needs to be more thoughtful, a thoughtful approach. Mm-hmm. And they were saying too, obviously the layoffs have been bad and no one's sort of dancing around that. But for companies that are looking to sort of go out and hire this year, do it really thoughtfully. They have the time to do it and they have the talent that's worth hiring right now. So it's almost kind of like if younger startups or sort of earlier companies that maybe didn't overhire, didn't have the means to, Mm -hmm. thinking about hiring now, it's like they've got a great talent pool to pick from. There's no pressure to hire quickly. 
And like, it's just going to end up being so much better for these companies in the long run. Yeah, Jackie, our crypto writer, wrote about, she had a great story about crypto mm-hmm. recruiters and their opportunity they're seeing since there's been so many layoffs. But one of the things in that article I found was interesting. It was like one person said, oh, there's no shortage of great resumes or impressive resumes, but the struggle is just finding like alignment in terms of just, mm. I think, probably more culturally. So I thought that was that was also interesting that like they're thinking beyond just like how a person looks on paper. And so, yeah, but to that point, there's definitely a lot of opportunity for the startups that are hiring. Yeah. There are more people than ever, right? Um, so you, you kind of have to wonder, like, the shift in terms of the talent, like, before it felt like the people looking for work had the upper hand, but now it feels like these startups that are hiring, they have a lot of people to choose from. So, yeah. you know, that whole dynamic is probably changing as well. I know it always like shifts back and forth before you can even catch up, which makes it super hard. But mm-hmm. I also think like one kind of wrinkle in that is if you're expensive as a person, like if you are like mm-hmm. a COO that just got fired, I feel like Becca's piece makes me think that you would maybe not be joining a early stage startup that's like open to hiring right now because it has runway. Like I feel like it's easier to be new and looking for jobs. I mean, generalizations all around than be mm-hmm. an expensive mm-hmm. top executive that maybe was hired at a company that now does not exist or in a like late stage, I think it just like makes me worry. Agreed. Yeah. For sure. No, because I saw, uh, I was chatting with a VC about something else yesterday, but somehow hiring and like the enterprise startup space came up. And she was saying, she was like, no one will like ever get paid this high salaries again. Mm. Like she was like, people getting laid off, people hiring, people are really taking a look at like the compensation packages and maybe if they overspent there, which what will that mean for competition and the talent war? I mean, yet to be seen, but I think there'll be a lot of stuff coming out of this trickling out over the year. Yeah, agreed. So many follow-up stories. Let's end on a positive note. And we're going to talk about a recent piece about women's health startups and really just this idea that, yes, women's healthcare tech companies raised less than they did in 2022 compared to 2021, but the sector still did well. And that's a celebration in and of itself. Per Dom's recent piece, according to PitchBook, femtech startups raised around $1.16 billion in 2022, less than the $1.41 billion they raised in 2021. But still way higher than the $496 million they raised in 2020. So, you know, that's still more than double. And also funding in the digital health sector as a whole dropped, I think it was by almost 50%. But femtech's share of digital health as a whole climbed to 13.26% in 2022 compared to 8.75 in 2021. So that's a lot of positive stuff for this space, a lot of data supporting its growth. Definitely. And I something I thought of too looking at this is that when the market started to turn, like last spring, a lot of was, oh, VCs are going to go back to the familiar and a flight to quality. And quality, of course, is I'm putting air quotes because every VC defines their own version of quality, but it was more of the flight to familiarity. So it's really good to see femtech, a space that some VCs are still sort of hesitant to even go into to begin with or aren't super comfortable investing in because they don't understand it or more of uh, not taking time to understand it. Yeah. So it's good to see that like in a challenging year, especially one of those kind of categories was able to get a bigger share, like showing that like people aren't going to just like totally flock out of the space 
because it's a little uncertain, which is definitely really good to see, especially for a category that it has such important implications. Which like continuing the theme of me getting upset about things today, I feel like the branding <laughs> of femtech, just like I still am frustrated with. And I know there's, yeah. there's ways where it works. Like I think it works when we're talking about women's health companies. So in this way, it works fine. But I think it's still being used to describe any company that's selling to women. And like, I don't know, I just feel like labels are so complicated in that way where like, they are holding things back. And I think it it others something, Becca, to your point, that like already is othered more. And I just don't want to say that word anymore. And it's just, I, I don't know. know. It's hard. I don't like that word at all either. And I feel like we only still continue to use it because it's the only way we know how to right now categorize companies in this space. But I, I agree. Don't love it either. But this is actually, I mean, this is a topic that you've been covering quite a lot lately, right, Natasha? You've written about, let's see, Maven, Sunfish, Baby List. I mean, yeah, a lot of interesting things going on in the space. I know. I love when, like, I'm not even talking to people on the team, but we, like, end up writing pieces that fit into each other, into a theme. And, like, I only realize it during equity. So shout out to our amazing production team for putting together right. an awesome script this week. But yeah, this week I wrote about Sunfish, which is, like, this new startup that's trying to build a financial assistant tool to help people who are pursuing assisted reproduction, whether that's egg freezing, IVF, or surrogacy, and a bunch of other things in between. And I also wrote about an acquisition, uh, this baby list, baby registry company ended up buying a mindfulness company all about parenthood and expecting called Expectful. So definitely seeing some like some activity there that I think supports that the sector isn't like, I don't know, compared to like ed tech that kind of disappeared, hopefully more on that next week. But for now, I was very happy to hear about women's health being really active. Yeah, I really liked what's going on at Sunfish. I, I feel like people who've had to go through, who've had fertility struggles, and if you didn't have the the money to fund things like IVF, you were just out of luck. And that sucks. So that's not fair. It's like, okay, only the people who can afford it or they're wealthier are able to do what they need to do to try to have kids. I mean, that, that just sucks on so many levels. So like, I love the the concept behind this company wanting to make, make having babies, uh, people who are having struggles to having babies, making that more accessible. So yeah, really love that. Totally. It's like, I think the stat I saw and the, the founder, Angela, told me was like, I think 73% of parents that go through assisted reproduction make over six figures. And it just like, yeah, mm. felt very like separate. And right. there's a bunch of companies in Sunfish's space. So hopefully more to come. But Marianne, I definitely nerded out over like the fintech and health overlap there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing so much more of that, but that's a topic for another day, I guess. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. You can read all the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com and be sure to use our TC Plus promo code, TC Podcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.